Okay, well, uh, good everyone. Uh, I'm Liam, the other pastor, and despite the passage I'm about to preach on, it is good to be here, and we, uh, it, it's good to open God's Word together, trusting that He He is good, and He gives us His Word for our for our good as well. Um, so, as as Rob said, yeah, a bit of a bit of a subject subject warning today. Um, if you've been reading through Second um, Samuel, you'll you'll know that this is a bit of a disturbing passage. So it is, it is sensitive. It's a tender, tender su- subject. Uh, and I want to say, uh, if you've been affected by this kind of thing, by this kind of uh, trauma, uh, I have been praying for you this week. I don't think you can read a passage like this and spend time in it without thinking and realising, yeah, th- this happens. So I have been praying for you this week. Uh, and if it gets a bit too much as we go through, uh, get some air, that's okay. No one's going to be looking at you. Just uh, take, get some space, that's fine. Um, and I do want to encourage you that help's available. So you'll see in the the, the outline this week, on the back uh, page we've put a list of counsellors uh, and psychologists that we can recommend. Um, and if you want to get in touch with me, I can point you in some other directions as well. Uh, but I do want to encourage all of us today is, I want to encourage you not to look away. Because I think that's what we often do when we see really painful things, really disturbing things. It's too much to deal with. It can be too much to look at, and so we we just don't. We we, we just don't look. So I want to encourage us not to look away, to sit with uh, the horrifying, uncomfortable reality of it, uh, to to face it. Um, so in a little while we'll read, but I want that. Hang on, I'll see if I can get down to here. Um, but as I've been working through this, uh, I was particularly remembering uh, a few years ago uh, a lady called Rachel Den Hollander. Does anyone recognise that name? Uh, she uh, is a Christian lady with an incredible expression of her faith. Uh, and she courageously spoke, spoke up about being sexually abused by her gymnastics doctor. She was on the USA gymnastics team, Larry Nassar, when, when she was 15 years old. Uh, and she led a kind of a lawsuit by, by speaking up. Uh, other girls came out uh, against Larry, who'd sexually abused 10 girls, at least 10. These were the ones who came forward, aged 6 to 16, when he abused them, under guise of medical treatment. And, it, and it's really horrifying. I, I, if you can handle it, I'd encourage you to watch, read, watch her victim in, impact statement. It's a tremendous expression of Christian faith. Also really horrifying. But, but some of the horrifying things she went through and a lot of these girls went through was not being believed when they, when they mentioned things years before, uh, putting in reports to the right people, nothing happening, uh, putting in reports and the people in charge going, really? Nah, Larry? Nah, he, w- he wouldn't do that. We, we know him. He's our colleague. And it being dismissed. Uh, people thinking, no, no, th- that wouldn't happen. N- not here. Uh, for them, no, not in America. Uh, not, in a, not in a medical professional room. Not sometimes with other people in the room. That, that couldn't happen. But, but that kind of attitude that suppresses and disbelieves and minimises or won't believe it, it actually comes from a view of people, uh, a, a view of the world that says the world is fundamentally good. If we have a view of the world and of people, that people are fundamentally good and the world is a lovely place, uh, 
we will go into it naive, thinking that things like this don't happen. But the sad reality is that we live in a world where this does happen. And if we go into life, if we go into our lives thinking it's going to be rosy, thinking it's all going to be great, we will get it wrong. Because we'll walk into life not ready, unprepared. So today, we're going to have a look at this broken world. Uh, uh, And last week, as we looked at David's sin with Bathsheba, we we noted that not much was said about Bathsheba's experience at all. Nothing really, except that she was comforted. We didn't really focus on her. But this week, uh, that's kind of corrected. Last week, the highlight was on David's sin. And and the, the Bible was trying to say, no, no, I want you to look squarely at what David has done. Look at David. This week, the camera shifts a little bit away from the abuser towards Tamar, the victim in this case. And so today, I want to encourage us to feel the weight of this, uh, to spend some time hearing Tamar, uh, hearing her experience, hearing her words. uh, And and then we're going to have a look at four men who failed Tamar before we work through some lessons uh, that we'll go home with. Uh, But to hear from Tamar, well, first of all, um, yeah, Anna, would you come up and read this passage for us uh, and we'll we'll work through this. So I'm reading from 2 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 to 20. In the course of time, Ammon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Ammon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shemiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so that I may watch her and then eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so that I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace. Go to the palace of your brother Amnon and prepare, and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, and made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom so that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it from him, took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? 
Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, Get up and get out. No, she said to him, Sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, Get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornament robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went. Uh, sorry, she put her hands on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, "Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart." And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister, Tamar. Oh, well, thanks, Anna, for reading that very hard passage. It's devastating, isn't it, to read something like that? This uh, beautiful, caring, her brother's sick. Yeah, I'll go. Hard-working young lady, innocent in every way. She's completely unsuspecting, isn't she? As she even goes into his room uh, to, to give him some bread she's cooked. She's sent there by her father. David sent her there to go to her brother. She's seized. And I don't know about you, I, I can hardly imagine the terror she must have felt as... Amnon grabbed her wrists and she pleads. She pleads with him. And it's quite striking that I think the only words in this whole chapter that are worth listening to are Tamar's. I mean, they're all worth listening to as a lesson, but everyone else in this chapter who says stuff or does stuff is just so ungodly. And, and it's only Tamar we see. And in fact, in the midst of her... I can only imagine would be the maybe the utmost terror of her life. We see her speaking with God's voice, speaking really deep truths. And she works through, don't force me, she says. Don't. She names it for what it is. He says, come to bed with me. And she says, no, I'm going to call this what it is. This isn't come to bed. Don't, don't force me, she says. And she says the first reason, because it's, it's bad for God. It's dishonoring to God. Uh, no, my brother, she says, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Do not do this wicked thing. She, she's referencing the law. She's referencing her God's nation, her people. And she says, this isn't who we are. It's wicked. It's against what our God has shown us. Don't do this wicked thing. But not only is it dishonoring to God, it's devastating for her. That's why she tries to warn him, don't do this. Even now, my brother, you can stop. What about me, she says. 
Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And even in the midst of this, where he still hasn't let her go, he, she knows he wants to, to rape her, and yet with compassion she says, this isn't even good for you. What about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. That wicked fool's word is, it's more than fool, it's a stronger word, it's more like a perverted word. She, she, she pleads with him, he ignores her. He will not listen, he refuses <clears throat> refused to listen to her. And he rapes her. She again pleads, don't, don't cast me out now. But he does. Again, it's repeated, he refused to listen to her. Has a servant throw her out, bolts the door, he hates her disgusted with her with her, by his hatred and, and she's she's disgraced she leaves his house in disgrace and the disgrace we were looking at this in, in growth group this week it's not not put on her by the society she's not shamed by her community she has been disgraced this has been done to her and she's not hiding it Looks like before she's left Amnon's courtyard or home, she finds some ashes and covers herself in ashes. The, what you do when you're mourning, when you're broken. Uh, she, she, she tears her robes, these, these robes that said she was a marriageable virgin daughter of the king. And weeping and wailing, she goes back through the town as she goes. And her father does nothing. Her brother, her full brother, Amnon was her half-brother, her full brother, Absalom, he tells her to be quiet. Don't make such a fuss. Keep it to yourself. And we read that Tamar lived with her brother in Absalom's house, a desolate woman. She doesn't disguise the horrendous pain and hurt that this brutal sin has wrought in her. And the Bible doesn't turn away from it e either. It, it would be quite easy in kind of recording Second Samuel just to skip over this. Oh yeah, and some kind of bad stuff happened in David's family, but hey, we moved on from all that, didn't we? No, the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't turn away its gaze. Uh, and God won't allow us to avert our gaze. This book doesn't allow us to say, you know what, this is just too hard to discuss. Let's, you know, let's just keep these things private. We kind of know they happen, but we don't want to talk about them. No, the Bible says, look, the Bible says, listen. No one else listens to Tamar in this chapter. Uh, we've got to ask, will we? Will we listen to her and feel her experience, even in a small way? And, and as we do, we, we can't help but examine these four men who fail Tamar. The first, Amnon, is, is quite obviously in his failure of his sister. He expresses, as Dale Ralph Davies puts it, desire without love. He's got, says, says he loves her, he doesn't love her. He has this desire, but there's no love there. We see it in verses 1 and 2. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Did you pick that up in the end there? To do anything to her. Not to woo her, 
not to have her as his wife, not to build a life together, to do anything to her. He sees her as a commodity, something to be used. And we see it in the way he rapes her, treats her like an item and, and kicks her out. He hated her after the, after the rape with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said, get up, get out. He cares nothing for her. This isn't love. Yeah, these words from Corinthians tell us that love is patient. <laughs> Amnon wasn't. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. This isn't love. This is desire. This is lust. There is no love here. Amnon fails his sister terribly. Desire without love. And Amnon's cousin, Jonadab, he is just as bad, it's about. He, he's complicit. He's involved. He came up with the idea. And Jonadab shows wisdom without principle. And when I say wisdom, I mean it in the kind of like he's shrewd. He knows how to get things done. He knows how the world works and acts accordingly to get things done. See, when he notices his cousin, Amnon at this stage was first in the line to be king after David, the heir apparent, he's weaseling his way in. And he notices his cousin, he's looking sick, he's looking haggard. He tries to work his way in. And when Amnon confesses, I've got this thing for my sister. What should Jonadab have done? Amnon, what are you doing? Get out of there. Ask your father to post you on the other side of the nation. But he doesn't. He's currying favor with the future king. So he comes up with the plan. Go to bed. Pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. It's foul, isn't it? Even reading this, it's seedy and disgusting. And it's all self-interest. How, how can I get in the good books of this future king? I don't care what he's like. I don't care what kind of king he would make. I don't care about Tamar. I just know how to get things done. The, the next chapter, we won't really look at it tonight, um, but Jonadab's still in the thick of it. He's still somehow a, an advisor to David, giving advice. It seems that he's complicit in a murder. He knows about it, but he doesn't stop it. He's just showing this wisdom, this shrewdness, with no principle. All, all self-interest facilitates this rape of Tamar, his cousin. And then comes David. And in a way, these are... I don't know if it's harder. One of the ways trauma works is that the deepest traumas come from the people who were meant to protect you, not... This is, this is dad, her father, the king, David. And he shows anger without justice. Verse 21, when King David heard all this, he was furious. He can't plead that he doesn't know what's going on. He knows. He heard it all. He, he is furious. He is livid. 
and there's this big, crippling, gun-stretching full stop. He could insert, he heard all this, he was furious, and he did nothing. Uh, how many levels is David failing on at this stage? He, oh, I mean, I wonder, how, how did he not kind of pick up that Amnon's request was a bit suspicious? What? You want your sister, who's beautiful, to come and make food? It's uh, a bit creepy, Amnon. Uh, no, no, he sent her. Then, then, then as, as a king, it was the king's job in Israel to uphold the law. That's, that's what the king's job was, to, to read God's law, God's good law, to protect the nation, to lead them in godly ways, to, to bring about justice. That was the job of the king. And he heard all this and did nothing. And as a father, his daughter has just been raped, violated, disgraced, humiliated publicly. And he, and he does nothing. I mean, we are, uh, what, what was going on for David? Was he caught between justice and love? Oh, you know, because the, the law said that a rapist must be stoned to death. It's very clear. But he loves his son, his heir, his firstborn. It was he caught between that. Maybe David is still feeling guilty about the abuse he committed towards Bathsheba, taking advantage of this beautiful woman. It's all too familiar, isn't it? Did he feel a bit too hypocritical? Oh, I couldn't punish Amnon. Maybe. Was he feeling guilty for sending Tamar there in the first place? We don't know, but he failed Tamar in every conceivable way. He had this anger, but there was no justice. And then Tamar's brother, who kind of looks like the best of a bad lot, just. Uh, and, and Absalom, he, he has this hatred, but with no compassion. And we see that in the way he responds to her. Her brother Absalom, she's weeping through the street. She's got ash on her head. She's torn her gown. And think this, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. What's God? Doesn't he care? I mean, it does seem that he cares about what happens. He's cared about the act. And we see that in verse 22. It's quite clear. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he disgraced his sister Tamar. And he actually spends two years waiting before murders his brother. That's the spoiler of the next chapter. Two years waiting, planning to murder Amnon and so getting one step closer to the throne. But in the midst of that, he's got anger, he's got hatred. But is there any compassion towards Tamar? I mean, part of me when he did actually kill Amnon, I kind of went, well, at least someone got the job done. David should have brought about execution, but it wasn't right. If he had compassion, he would have comforted her. He would have said, come on, my sister, let's go to the court. Let's speak to our father, the king, and plead for justice. He, he doesn't have compassion for her. He doesn't want justice. But out of his hatred, he wants revenge. No compassion. 
And as hard as that is to sit through, I want to encourage us, this is a good thing, good on you for not looking away. Because no one listens to Tamar in this chapter. No one listens to Tamar, but God did. God heard. God recorded it. And in a way, he kind of holds our heads and forces us to look at it, to leave us with this horror, to see the failings of these four men. But, but that's not all that this chapter's here for. We, we, we shouldn't walk away from this just with horror and do nothing. I want to encourage us not to walk away from this like David, furious but impotent. And there's so many lessons we could, we could work from here. I've got four that I want us to take home, and there will be a question time at the end if, if you've got anything. The first lesson I think that we must take from this is that we must protect the vulnerable. Uh, as the overseers and Rob and I chat about child protection and stuff, uh, kind of a phrase comes up sometimes that you go, I wish we didn't have to do this. Not because it's hard, not because it's a pain, not because we don't value it. I wish we were in a world where we didn't have to think about this. Where vulnerable people weren't at risk. In fact, um, child protection has now changed its language to protecting vulnerable people because there's a, children are one group of people that are especially vulnerable. Protecting the vulnerable. Absalom didn't protect his sister. David didn't protect his daughter. Jonadab didn't protect his cousin. Abs uh, Amnon certainly didn't protect. They, but especially those other three in and around the servants who left. Surely they were still in the house. No one protected Tamar. Oblivious in their failings. And, and, and it's obvious in this chapter that that's something we should see and feel that this isn't right. And someone, who's going to step in and protect Tamar? Who's going to do the right thing here? And as we flick to the New Testament, it's explicit. There's so many places we can go, but the one that came to mind for me was in 1 Peter 3, where the Apostle Peter's writing to Christians. He's particularly talking to husbands, men who are physically more powerful than women. And here's what he says. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, now this is a verse that sometimes gets people up in arms. Oh, how are women weaker? Well, there, there's a reason why women are far more often raped than men. Almost always, it's a man who rapes a woman, not a woman who rapes a man. Because women in general are physically weaker. They are vulnerable. That's why this word's here to husbands. They're, they're, they're weaker. Show them honour, Peter says. Show them honour. Love them, protect them. And, and how do you show them honour? What kind of category of honour should you give to them? What kind of protection? Well, as co-heirs co-heirs with Christ, God's children, daughters, sisters of ours. Protect them. Now, now, there's all sorts of places we need to apply this, certainly, certainly within marriage, but also within our community. And that's, I think often we have to think, let's start close and work our way out. We, we can't fit everything, fix everything in the world, 
But we've got to start at our closest circles of responsibility, our families, as Christians, as members of Lake Mac Church, our church family, our communities, our school communities. They step out. How can we protect the vulnerable? Through child protection policies and procedures. Through the kind of thoughtfulness we try and have about men and women being alone together and, and how that might provide an opportunity or make someone uncomfortable. It's just not as above board. The sad reality is our world is broken. I wish we lived in a world and I long to live in the new creation where we don't have to think about this stuff because there is no sin. We don't have to have thoughts and rules about men and women being alone together one-on-one. -on -one. But we do, because this is the world we live in. We must protect the vulnerable. We are all sinners. How can, how can we not put this stuff in place? So that's the first lesson. The, the next lesson is to ask, who do I listen to? This is a self-question. Who am I listening to? Because we, we have some bad influences in these chapters, don't we? Jonadab, I don't think you could find worse advice. How different could this have been if Jonadab was a godly man? How, how differently might this chapter have gone? If Jonadab said, Amnon, thanks for telling me, that was really brave, but this is wrong and you need help. I'm here for you, let's get you some help and make sure this thing never happens. Our world is full of bad influences. And often the bad influences come with out of self-interest. We'll see it when people don't pull us up on our sin. They just don't say anything. Or kind of say, oh, you know what? Oh, it's not that bad. You're okay. We'll see it when they tell us what we want to hear. Or advise worldliness. And it's not just people. It's, it's screens. It's what is coming into our ears and our eyes everywhere. Our whole culture is desensitizing violence. That's been happening for a long time. But especially sexual violence is desensitized in our culture. Uh, mainstream movies, Fifty Shades of Grey, uh, and they had a sequel. That's sexual violence. That's what it's all about. Go see it. Uh, even shows that might, you know, I think, oh, is that so bad? CSI Miami? Heard of that one? There's a spin-off, CSI Miami, SVU, Special Victims Unit, where every episode is basically a violent sex crime. Entertainment. Might seem innocent, it's just on primetime telly. Desensitising, desensitising. It's an influence that's coming in that can make us a little bit numb to this stuff. I would encourage us to pause and ask... What am I reading? What am I listening to? What am what I like? Oh, that's okay. It's not too bad. It's not too explicit. Am I being desensitized to this? Is this seeing normal rather than horrific? Uh, the Apostle John writes in his letter, chapter 2, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is for everyone, everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. What am I listening to? 
We, we need to know our Bibles, don't we? We need to be saturated by them. So that when someone, even a well-meaning Christian, gives us advice or says something, hey, it's not too bad, you can do that. That's fine. A little alarm bell in our mind. Hang on, I, I think I read something recently. I don't think that's right. Who am I listening to? This is the second one. The third is to see the link between sin and families. Now, you might have heard a phrase thrown around, generational sin. Uh, different church, different church uh, traditions kind of define this differently. Uh, and in some traditions, there's kind of an idea that somehow, oh, I can't become a Christian because, I don't know, my, my great uncle was a mason or something. Uh, someone in my family uh, did this really bad thing and that is having kind of spiritual unknown consequences on me. And we, we, we don't get that sense in the Bible. Uh, what the Bible says, and, and through uh, Exodus and Leviticus, God does show there's consequences of parents' sin and grandparents' sin on their families. But here, here's just a verse from Ezekiel that makes it really clear where we stand with God. Uh, Ezekiel 18 says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The, righteous of the, the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So when it comes to our position with God, nothing our parents have done, our grandparents have done, our uncle, our cousins, our siblings. No, no, this, it's, it's on us and our relationship with him, with Jesus. But there is clear and traumatic effect of sin on generations, generations of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. God's punishment on a sinner, we saw that with David, it affects more than the sinner. However God punished David, even if God had said, hey, David, you did the sin, I'm going to kill you, you are punished. David's children would have grown up without a father. Bathsheba would have had no one to protect her. The, the nation would have gone into civil war. Punishing one person never just punishes that one person. There's always effect. Children, siblings, parents, widows. There's always more. There's these natural consequences of sin that affect families. Uh, trauma from one generation coming through affects the way we parent, often if it's not dealt with. But the good news of the Bible is that there's, there's actually hope. There's hope to break it. There's hope to break it kind of up uh, between you and, and the generation before us. There's hope to get help, to speak about this stuff, to bring it into the light, to repent, to get training, to think about how we can parent wisely. And that's where the hope comes for breaking it down. If you've got children, there is hope for breaking it down. The call of the Bible is to raise the kind of children who will love and protect others. Not the kind of children who will treat others like dirt. Uh, Ephesians 6, Paul Christians uh, to Christian fathers, but parents in general, do not pr provoke your children to anger. Usually that's all I hear quoted. <laughs> do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline instruction of the Lord. Discipline can look all sorts of different ways, but it's a biblical requirement. 
Parents, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The harder one is accepting, if you're a parent, that we will pass on trauma. Uh, someone very wise uh, said to Lucy and I that, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but they said, you will stuff up your kids, but not in the way you think you will. And I think it's helpful. It's saying the thing you're worried about passing on that you're dealing with, that you're talking about, and chances are you'll do a great job there because <laughs> you're aware of it, you're dealing with it. But I want to encourage us not to be so arrogant as to think that while our parents got it wrong, we'll get it right. If they got it wrong, we'll get it right. We, we, we can't get it right. Maybe, maybe you're in the position where you've got grown children, your parents have grown children, you have regrets. Maybe like me, you've got young children, you've already got regrets. I want to say Jesus is our hope, not being perfect parents. That's not where salvation comes from. Jesus is our hope, not being perfect parents. And that's where we want to land this right. The Christian hope is not found in being good, or being better than people in the Bible, that's not where we get our hope. The Christian hope is in our just King Jesus. See, Jesus offers so much hope to a broken world. Uh, I could have gone anywhere in the New Testament for this, but in Luke 4, Jesus is speaking, and he quotes this prophecy from Isaiah describing his ministry, he's describing his own ministry, saying, I'm fulfilling this prophecy and I was reading that this this week with memory of Tamar and her disgrace, the ashes on her head, her torn garments. Hear what Jesus says about himself. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the broken heart, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. Do you hear these as promises to Tamar? To Rachel Den Hollander? Beautiful promises to anyone affected by the horror of sin. Our King Jesus. He is all that the men in this passage are not. He's loving, he's gentle, he's compassionate, he's kind, he's just, 
justice. And he can do what we can't. He can restore. He can actually bring hope for restoration for those who have been grievously hurt. So that they can be restored to the point of being able to forgive. Not without justice. I think Rachel Den Hollander models this beautifully. Uh, in her address at court, it's about 40 minutes, her victim impact statement. Uh, she actually called for the harshest possible penalty on her uh, abuser, Larry. She, she unequivocally called the judge, said that you've, you've got to make a statement about the value of young women. And she called for the harshest justice, right and good. But she also offered forgiveness in the same statement, and even hoped Larry. And I, I want to finish with her words. Uh, here's, a, here's a quote from her, her statement. She said, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Let's pray. Father God, in this world of brokenness and sin and pain, we want to sit with this, not turn our faces away, but weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and recognise the tremendous hurt that has been done, is being done, that we do, and we come to you broken-hearted, but with a tremendous and profound hope. We, we thank you that you did not leave this world in the horrific mess that it is. But you offer forgiveness and restoration, kindness, gentleness, healing, adoption and love, and that you even bring to repentance those who sin, like us. So we, we pray that you would help us in a broken world not to think it's going to be better than it is, not to turn away from suffering, but to do what we can to rely on your power to protect those amongst us, one another, wherever we can who are vulnerable to watch who we're listening to and fill our minds and eyes and ears with your words, to be influenced by you and good godly counsel. Help us, Lord, to wrestle with the sin that is in all families. And we also pray that we would put our hope not in how good we can be, not in our ability to fix this, but in Jesus, who brings justice and love and healing. And we thank you for that in his name. Amen. Now, I will turn my phone off aeroplane mode. Um, we will have prayer after, after the service. Um, so if you, you want to ask a question quietly or, or speak about this more, I'd love to talk privately, but um, might get a mic around.
Thanks, Alice. And I think I've had one come. Let's have a look. Ah, thank you. Good question. If Tamar had refused to go to Amnon's house, what would have happened to her repercussions? We don't know, but um, she probably didn't have much of a choice in it. The king, king asks you to do something. If your father asks you to do something in that culture, yeah, it's a very honour, um, kind of that's ahead of the family kind of deal. Uh, I don't sense in this passage a reluctance from Tamar, which makes her more beautiful and this more devastating. I, I, I sense in her uh, compassion for her brother who's sick. Oh, what can I do? That, that's, that's not explicit, but that's, that's how I read, read it. But I, she probably didn't have much of a choice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sue's got one down here, and while you're coming, I've just got one other. Um, if God is sovereign, why does he allow these horrible things to happen to innocent people? And this is probably one of the biggest uh, biggest questions we have, isn't it? How do we reconcile what the Bible very clearly claims, that God is sovereign, that he's powerful, he's not just watching, wringing his hands, he, he intervenes, he intercedes. Uh, why does he allow this, this kind of thing to happen? Oh, it, it, the, the answer the Bible gives is this world is sick. And these kind of things are a symptom of the sickness. And not just that this world is sick, but we are sick. Our relationship with God is sick. Um, if, if I had a um, deadly illness with no symptoms and that carried on, I, I probably would just die. But if I get a really painful symptom of this deadly illness, I don't welcome that symptom. I wish I didn't have it. But if that symptom sends me to the doctor and I can get treatment and I can deal with that sickness, that symptom, as horrific as it is, it's a hard answer, but that's a... The world we live in is a horrific place. Sin is horrible. And if God were just to kind of sanitize everything, would would it be as it is? Would it be real? He doesn't. But it's a hard one to wrestle with, I think. Um, so, Tim will turn you on. Have another go. Two questions. Do you think that going into Chapter 14, David... Um, didn't respond harshly to his son's murder by his other son because he knew that the, he should have been dead all the time and that was the right mm. thing to do in the first place? Perhaps. Um, the, the end of the chapter says that um, David welcomed Absalom back uh, because he was consoled over Amnon's death. I read that. I think that's saying he was grieved over Amnon's death and angry with Absalom but three years had gone past and it was like, oh, I'm kind of over that now. You can come back. Um, maybe. I, well, I don't know how hard David's conscience was at this point. Yeah. And do you see a parallel between Eli and David, both who were busy mm. looking after the world around them but neglected their sons? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So for those who don't know, Eli is actually 
how the book of First Samuel starts is the prophet, and we'll we'll pull it up there just for time. But I'm really happy to have more more questions. Unless you you've got a burning one, actually, we started a bit late, so we're okay. But Eli was that first prophet, and his sons ended up horrifically corrupt. Um, actually, as did Samuel's sons later on. Um, so I think there's a lesson there to pay attention to our own backyard. I think uh, Christians can sometimes get so concerned with what the world's doing and what the culture's doing that we don't pay attention to our own own backyard. And um, and that's something I, I guess I want to ask uh, all of us as church to do is that I pray we, we never have to use our um, working with children's policies in a serious way. I pray that we never have to use our code of conduct. But if we do, pray that we'll do it with justice and that we won't cover it up which has happens, whether it's in families or church families. I think if we were less concerned about what the world's doing and more concerned about making sure this community is one impeccable protection and love and care in a much better place. I reckon we'll sing now because we've got a wonderful song to respond to this. So thanks, guys. <laughs>